Uh, but this is 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who appoints to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. All right, well, this morning we are obviously looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, so if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to keep it open uh, as we explore what Paul has to say here. Uh, but one of the things right off the bat that Paul talks about is this reality of spirituality. I didn't intend for that to rhyme, but it does. The reality of spirituality. Uh, that most people, if you talk to them, uh, whether they're religious or not, are open to this idea that being human uh, is somehow to be spiritual. Right, the most like least the least religious person you can encounter probably at some point, unless they are like a diehard materialist, say only like science and electrons and neurons make up a human. Most people acknowledge that there's some kind of spiritual thing to being human. Now, where you find that spirituality, whether it's in religion, whether it's in nature, whether it's in uh, podcasts, I don't know. Wherever you find that, we tend to be open to this idea of spiritual things. 
Uh, and then we can kind of talk about where you find that connection. But really what we're looking for is like, my life has to matter for something. Right? Like if I'm just neurons and protons and uh, like, it seems like there's something more to me. Uh, and what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if you look at it in verse 1, he says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be uninformed. Now, there's an interesting thing that's happening with what Paul is saying there. Because the first word that he uses there, now concerning spiritual gifts, is not actually the word that he uses the rest of the passage. He actually says, now concerning spiritual things. He's saying, now concerning what does it mean to be a spiritual person in the way of Jesus? What does it mean to have this life in the way of Jesus that makes you alive? He's not even talking about spiritual gifts yet. He's just saying, what does it mean to be a spiritual person? What does it mean to be a person who trusts in Jesus and to have this vibrant spiritual life? That's what he's talking about. Uh, and, and he does this in verse 2, as you look, by critiquing or causing us to think about uh, where we tend to look for spiritual meaning. He says to them, he says in verse 2, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Now, remember, he's talking to, as we've talked about the context, uh, uh, kind of a culture and a city that had lots of spiritual options. You could go to a pagan temple for uh, Zeus and get connected to Zeus in some kind of spiritual way. You could go to the temple of Artemis and have some kind of experience there. And, and he even seems to indicate in verse 2 that they were, in fact, having some kind of spiritual experience in those places. Something was happening. There was a, they were feeling some kind of connection. Right? We search for spirituality in all these different ways. Maybe for you it's nature. Maybe for you it's uh, family. Maybe for you it's kind of like deep inner searching for like the inner divine. You might be searching for something spiritual in your life. But Paul says this, you're searching, wherever you search for spiritual meaning, is always going to end up with this one challenge. And that's that on the other end of your spiritual search, there's no voice. Right? There's nothing on the other side of your spiritual source, search that says, hey, good news, you finally made it. Which if you uh, have talked to anybody who's kind of searching for spiritual things, or maybe you've been on kind of a spiritual quest, how do you know you finally found it? How do you know you finally made it? How do you know you found that spiritual connection, that spiritual meaning, or that, that deep life purpose or connection with the universe? How do you know? Paul's saying this, you can go to all these different temples, or for us, you can go to all these different ways of spirituality, or all these different religious approaches, or all these different approaches to life, but you'll never quite know if you found it. But verse 3, he says, let me introduce you to the beginning of Christian spirituality. How do you know in the spiritual way of Jesus that you found it? Look at the contrast that he puts in verse 3. Verse 2, we're searching after mute idols. There's no voice on the other side. There's nothing to kind of give us a stamp of approval that, yes, you finally made it. But verse 3, he says this, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. See, what he's saying is, is a Christian approach or, or spirituality in the way of Jesus does not begin with our search for God, but in fact, we find that God has been searching for us, that God has been reaching out for us. He has been moving before we've ever been moving. And so Christian spirituality or, or kind of being made alive in a spiritual kind of sense in the way of Jesus begins with allowing ourselves to be found by God, that God actually desires us and seeks us out enough that before we ever took the first step, he initiated it. So much so that, that he says that we can't even utter the words, Jesus is king, unless God has somehow moved in our hearts. 
I mean, think about how good that news is, right? In a world that's kind of searching for spirituality, searching for spiritual connection or spiritual movement or spiritual belonging, that, that in the way of Jesus, it is for us not an endless quest, it is instead resting in what God has already done and experiencing what God has already done in us. And spirituality in the way of Jesus begins with what God has already done as he wakens, wakes you up to himself. Which means that, like, if you want to know, like, am I a spiritually alive person? It doesn't have to have some sort of ecstatic experience or some sort of mountaintop experience. What Paul is saying is, is if you have in your heart and with your mouth confessed that Jesus is king, then you are a spiritually alive person. That's it. You don't have to go on a grand quest or a deep pilgrimage or, or go off to some mountain to find God. God has found you. And the evidence that you're a spiritually alive person is that you've embraced that Jesus is in charge of your life. That's it. And, and so how simple is that? How simple is it to be made alive in the way of Jesus? Which means if you're here this morning, you're like, I don't feel very spiritual. I don't feel like a very good follower of Jesus. The, the beauty of this is that God's already doing a work in you. He's already working in you. And he's working that out as you seek to follow him. That also changes the burden of sharing Jesus with people. You think about it, right? If Paul says this, no one can say Jesus is king except the Holy Spirit. That means that like the best programs in the world that we could offer as a church, the best apologetic or evangelistic witness that you could offer to somebody, the best argument that you could give for the way of Jesus, apart from the movement of the Holy Spirit, is irrelevant. Like, God is pursuing people, and we're simply joining him on his pursuit of people. And so, spirituality in the way of Jesus is recognizing this, that everything that we have is a gift. I think about that. Everything that we have is a gift. If even the ability to say Jesus is king is itself God working, then your spiritual life, uh, your life in community, your understanding of the Bible, your ability to pray, all of these things are God's gifts to us. And so we're simply invited to then enjoy them, embrace them, and use them. This is a radically different posture to a spiritual quest that's always trying to find something. Instead, in the way of Jesus, we're invited to receive what God's given, and then to share that in the context of community. And this then leads to when Paul starts talking about spiritual gifts, because right? spiritual gifts, I think that's an important foundation for thinking about spiritual gifts, because if we're not careful, we can think of spiritual gifts as like, well, I'm just really good at talking, right? or I'm just really good at singing, or I'm just really good at like praying, or I'm just really good at like baking cookies that just heal people's deep emotional wounds. But that's not what spiritual gifts are. Spiritual gifts are, are this thing that God is doing in you that then you get to share in the context of community. And so it's not a popularity contest. Or it's not a, a contest to see who's the most educated or who's had the most practice. It's instead saying, what is God doing in our life together? And so the evidence that God is working is that you have these spiritual gifts. And so verse 4, what does Paul say? Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all. Now this would be really important for Paul to say to them, and I think for us to hear as well. Because in their context, remember, uh, there was a temple for everyone. A temple for Zeus, a temple for Apollos, uh, a temple for Artemis. Now, there's Greek and Roman gods. I'm totally botching that. But you get the idea, right? There's lots of spiritual options. 
And the tendency is, the tendency for them to think is that I'm over here and I have this spiritual experience, and so therefore it's that God. But you're over here and you have this spiritual experience, and therefore it's this other God. But instead what Paul is saying is God is in himself a community of unity and diversity. He even slips in, if you look at verse 4, 5, and 6, he slips in this Trinitarian code, right? Christians believe that God is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So what does he say in verse 4? He says, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord, referencing Jesus. There's a variety of activities, but the same God the Father. He's saying if, if Christians believe that God is three in one, then we should expect that God is big enough to embrace our diversity. He is big enough to embrace the different ways that he's going to work in your life and how he's going to work in my life. So we should expect that in the church of Jesus, there's going to be different experiences, different gifts, but one community. And so verse 7, then, what, he's, what does he say? To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now, let's just parse some of those words there. He says, to each is given. That means that each one of you, each one of us, when you have trusted in Jesus, you are given a spiritual gift. Right? It, it, there's no timeline. There's no kind of uh, waiting period. There's no kind of initiation route. He says this, to each is given. So if you follow Jesus, God has given you a spiritual gift. Now, what is that spiritual gift? To each is given, second phrase, the manifestation of the Spirit. Now, that Greek word manifestation means manifestation. In essence, like, it's a very vague word. Because Paul is, I think, particularly concerned that you might say, okay, well, this is what that means. But no, he's saying, like, God's Spirit is going to work in you, and he's going to do something in you. That's what happens when God's Spirit gives you a gift. Is it just going to look like a variety of different things? I mean, Paul gives kind of a list in verses 9, 10, and 11 of a lot of different things. And so he says there's some way that God's Spirit is going to work in you. But then the last phrase, it says, for the common good or for the benefit of all. In essence, what he's saying is this, that God's Spirit has given you this function or this role or this gift, but it's not for you. It's not for you. And you see, we live in this world that loves like personality tests, right? Or, or spiritual gifts tests, right? You might know what your Myers-Briggs is. Uh, you might know what your Enneagram number is. Uh, you might know what your Strengths Finders is, your DISC profile, uh, your Hogwarts house, right? You know all of these things. We love personality tests. Why? Because they give us a very objective standard of like, this is where I am. I, I scored a 98 on like uh, entrepreneurship, right? Strengths finders, right? Or I'm like, I'm a four on the Enneagram. Or like, I'm, I'm an ENFP in the Myers-Briggs. Or, or I'm a Gryffindor. Right? We love these personality tests. But what Paul is saying is the way for you to discover your spiritual gift is not through a personality test. The best way for you to discover your spiritual gift is to ask your neighbor. Ask the person sitting next to you. Ask the person in your community group. Ask the person who has seen you at your worst. Because the purpose of your spiritual gift is not so that you can like, put it on your Instagram bio and say, like, I'm a prophet, right? or I've got the gifts of administration. The purpose of your gift is to benefit someone else. So someone else will probably know what your spiritual gift is before you do. Because they've seen you. They've watched you. They've been blessed by you or encouraged by you. 
See, I, I didn't really have an aspiration to be a pastor or a teacher. I, in fact, was running from it for a long time. But what I found is that when I would teach the Bible, people would say, not just like, oh, you, like, that was good, but like, you made me think. Or like, God did something. You kind of challenged how I was thinking. And so, and so the, the trajectory for my life wasn't like I woke up one day, I was like, I want to teach the Bible. It was like, as I opened up the Bible, people would be like, hey, that, God did something in that. The same thing is true for you, right? How do you know what your spiritual gift is? You can take a test online, and there's nothing wrong with the test, but the best way for you to know is to ask someone who knows you. Say, how have you experienced like, more of God because of me? How have you grown in your grasp or your understanding of the gospel because of me? How have you been built up because I've been in your life? How have you moved forward in the mission of Jesus because I've been around, right? The best way to know what your spiritual gift is is to ask your neighbor. But we don't like that because, like, tests are nice and clean. I can do that in the privacy of my own home. But to discover my spiritual gift in the context of community, that requires that I'm in people's lives. But Paul is saying this, like, the purpose of your spiritual gift is to build up other people. So if you're not in community with other followers of Jesus, you're not going to know what your spiritual gift is. Even if the spiritual gifts assessment tells you that it's a gift of prophecy, but if you're not in the context of community, it doesn't matter. Because the purpose of the spiritual gift is for someone else. Now this changes how we think about ourselves and how we think about other people. It changes how we think about ourselves and how we think about other people. Paul then picks up this really famous picture of the church as a body. That we're all connected. We all have different roles to play, different gifts to play. Verses 15 through 20, uh, he, he tells us how this changes how we think about ourselves. He uses this picture. He says, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. He's saying this. We tend to compare ourselves with other people and say, well, I feel like a foot, and I wish I was a hand. If I think about it, like, I think about my hands a whole lot more than I think about my feet. I think my hands, I'm like waving around. I'm like, I'm feeding myself with my hands. I'm writing with my hands. I'm texting with my hands. But if I don't have feet, I'm not going anywhere. And that's Paul's point, is we tend, to, we tend to compare ourselves to other people and say, well, I don't have that gift, so therefore I'm somehow less than. I think we have to be mindful that like, our culture tends to value some strengths over others. And so our culture like, values entrepreneurship. It values being re- really well-spoken or, or looking really good in, on Instagram or, or having a really good kind of uh, presentation of yourself. And so the tendency is to take that and then apply it to the church and say, well, well I'm not like they are. I'm not as well-spoken as they are. I don't sing as well as they are. Like, I don't have some of those kinds of gifts, and so therefore we say, hey, I'm less than. But Paul is saying this, you are given a manifestation of the Spirit, and so you're absolutely essential. So don't compare yourself to other people. Verse 18, he says, As it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. Which means that your role in this community, your role in the, the community of Jesus, is absolutely essential. And it's a gift that he's given you to share with other people. And so when you find yourself saying, well, I just do this, I don't do that, that's the wrong attitude to have. Because you've been given a gift. And it doesn't matter if that gift is very pronounced or very behind the scenes. That is a gift that God has given you to use for the building up of the body. And I think part of that also means that like, you don't have to wait for permission to use your gift. Sometimes the tendency is to think, well, well, I have to wait for permission from, like, the mouth, right? The one who's in charge, the one who's calling the shots, or the head. Like, no, like, the gift is given to you by the Spirit, 
And so you don't have to wait for another part of the body to say, okay, good, now I validate your gift. Now use it. You are given a gift, so use that gift. You see, this radically changes how we think about ourselves. Whether you feel like you fit or not, whether you feel like you've got a gift that you want or not, God has given you the gift. And so therefore, you are essential to the community of Jesus. Second, this changes how we think about other people. Verses 20 to 26, Paul flips the picture around. And he imagines that the I is saying to everything else, I don't need you. Like, I can see everything. I can do everything because I, you're, you're helpless without me. And so he's talking to this tendency that when we find our niche, or when we find our gift, we tend to act as if we own it. And then we look at other people who are different than us, and we look down on them, or we judge them, or we overlook them. And so when we tend to value some gifts over the other, that's what tends to happen is we say, well, this is kind of the more important or this is kind of the more popular or this is the more, more necessary role and, like, and you're over here, so like, we get a lot of pride in that. But Paul says instead that the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. The parts of the body that we tend to hide are actually the most important and that's God's intent and purpose. So we don't, we don't become a lopsided community that only values some gifts over the other, that, that only exercises some gifts over the other. We like, uh, this is super random, but like the M. Night Shyamalan movie where there's a guy who only works out one arm and not the other. Like where he, so he's got a super buff left arm, but he doesn't work out his right arm. Like that's sometimes how we're like. Say, well, these gifts matter, so we're super buff over here, but on this side, we're like, we don't value those things. No, Paul says, round it all out. Each one of you is essential. And so this changes how we think about other people. Uh, I found this in my own life. When I was 14, part of my body said it didn't want another part of my body. My immune system was like, those little cells over there, we don't need them. And so I started attacking them, started getting rid of them. These cells are like, if you were to take a strand of your hair, that's how big those cells are if you cut that in half. And I had never thought about those cells. I never thought about that function before. But because those little tiny cells got attacked, my whole body was wrecked for months. I lost 50 pounds. I stopped eating. I was sleeping 16, 17 hours a day. I was groggy. Every part of my body was affected because these little tiny cells were gone. That's the picture that Paul is giving. That's diabetes, by the way. Some of you are like, what? <laughs> like, that's what the picture that Paul is giving, is that when we treat some parts of the body like they're not as important, we're missing out on the point. I was texting Dan Hazlitt this weekend because he broke his toe. And his little tiny toe, right? you're like, I got 10 toes. I broke one, and he's down for the count because every part of the body is indispensable. And so when we act like we don't need each other, that's what we're acting like. So I want to like lean into this a little bit. And as your pastor, I want to pastor us into some, into some ways in which we tend to think I don't need each other. Uh, how does this look today, right, where we're like, you're, you're a hand, I'm an eye, right? So I don't need you. What does this look like for us? I just have five, five ways in which we tend to say, I don't need you, either in our actions or in our attitudes, five ways in which we tend to say, I don't need you. Right. Now, I'm not thinking about anyone personally, so if this feels personal, uh, that's the Holy Spirit, uh, and I'm just trying to pastor us, so like, don't, don't, get, don't get grumpy with me. All right. uh, five ways in which we say, I don't need you. Okay, the first is this. Uh, we limit our imagination of church to a service or a sermon. We, lim we limit our imagination of church to a service or a sermon. So we think, I'm going to church. And what, what do we mean by that? I'm going to church, and I'm going to sit, I'm going to look at a stage, and I'm going to watch people do things. 
that's not a church. And so when we limit our imagination to what, just what happens in this hour, hour and a half, we're, we tend to prioritize uh, very public gifts over everything else. And I think we do this sometimes where, where we uh, rely on a live stream beyond just like, oh, I'm sick and I need to stay home. But instead we say, I don't want to deal with people today. And so I'm just going to tune in. All right, or we say, well, I don't need to come early for church as long as I get there for the sermon. And then we cut out afterwards. Or saying that there's some gifts in the community that I value more than others. I don't need those other parts of community. And so we limit our experience of life together. The second way we tend to say, I don't need you, is when we aren't willing to be discipled, taught, or corrected. Because what happens when you get into community is, is you're living your life, uh, and, and like we love community. Like Eating a meal together is great. But as soon as someone is like, hey, I noticed this about how you're living, we're like, I don't need you. I don't, I don't want to deal with that. Just let me do my thing. But part of the way that God has wired the body is so that when you're in community, someone who is maybe more discerning than you or someone who is maybe ahead of you in their journey following Jesus and has learned some things, they, they start to lean in and maybe they have the gift of exhortation and the gift of teaching and they want to help you straighten some things out in your life so you can follow Jesus more faithfully. We say, nope, I'll just come for the pizza. I'm not here for the discipleship. We say, I don't need you. But that's part of the body doing its work. Third, uh, third way we say I don't need you is when we prioritize community as the last thing in our week. We prioritize community as the last thing in our week. Right, where you're kind of going throughout your week and, and like here at Wingfoot, we got house churches that meet, we got Sunday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, uh, and, and maybe you got a community of some other followers of Jesus too, then that's kind of your community. But what, what can tend to happen is we kind of look at our week and let's just say like Tuesday rolls around. Uh, and it's like, uh, Tuesday, okay, like I've got house church, or I could also go do that thing. Or I got invited to that thing. Or uh, I don't really feel like people, so like there's a new Netflix show on, right? Where it's like uh, sometimes community can be like on the same list as like organizing my sock drawer. It's like, well, if I got nothing else to do, I'll do this over that. But no, like, like part of life together is saying, I'm going to prioritize being in community with other people because it is in that context that I will experience the Spirit. It's in that context that I will be reminded of the gospel. It's in that context that I will be able to use my gifts and allow other people to use their gifts as well. And so that's going to be a priority space for me in my week. That this is where I go connect with other followers of Jesus who can build me up. That is part of what being in the church is about. is prioritizing it, blocking it out in your week to say, this is absolutely essential. Now, I know there's seasons of life, and I know there's sickness, I know there's parenting, I know there's jobs, all those things. But like the priority of saying, whenever I can get there, I'm going to get there so that I can be in the context of other followers of Jesus. Uh, fourth way we say, I don't need you, is when we resist committing to a local church. When we resist committing to a local church. Uh, we live in a culture that resists commitment. Like in every possible way, I want to keep my schedule open, I want to keep my calendar open so I can do what's best for me. And so what can tend to happen is we kind of move from community to community, and I get a little bit of community here, a little bit of programming here, a little bit of sermon here, and what happens is you get into these communities, but people only know a slice of you. They only see you as like, as Tuesday night Tim, right, or Wednesday night Walt, that's really bad, but you know what I'm getting, you know, like, uh, <laughs> you know what I'm saying where like they only see you in, in like a part of your life. But when you say I'm committing to a local church, you're saying, I'm, I'm, this is my space. 
This is my community. These are my people. I'm, I'm going to root myself here, which means that they're going to see me like on Tuesday night when I'm at my best and Friday night when I'm at my worst. That when I'm going to come to church on Sunday, it's, it's going to be in the acknowledgement that people have seen me like on Wednesday. And so committing to a local church is to say, hey, this is the space where I'm going to grow. This is the space where as far as I can see, as far as God is leading, right, I'm going to root myself here. And that's how we grow in community together. Not by kind of skipping from one place to the other and resisting commitment. This is why for us as a church, we, we prioritize membership. Uh, one of the things that we said from the get-go is, is like we live in this very anti-commitment world. And so part of being a part of a church is, is like committing by becoming a member. Uh, and, and so we've, we've tried to make that process very easy and very simple. So that you can get connected. But that's also why we say here at the church, until you join membership, uh, we don't want to connect you to a place to serve. It's not because we don't need you. We need you. But because membership and service go hand in hand. Because every time that you join, every time someone joins our church, our church changes. Our, our body grows. The, the skills and the strengths that we have and the weaknesses that we have are all part of that life together. And so that's why we said, hey, when you join membership, we'll connect you to serve. And until you join membership, we don't want you to serve. It's not because we don't need you, but because we think that serving is part of this larger thing that God's doing. And so we said, okay, to do that, we need to make becoming a member as easy as possible. And we need to make connecting to serving as easy as possible because this is God's will and God's purpose for our church. And so here, it's just a matter of going to Hope in the Heights, our class, and you sit down with me and we just talk about your life in Jesus, and then you share your story. That's it. There's no like secret ceremony. There's no sign in a, a sacrifice or any, there's nothing like that. We just want to make sure you know Jesus and you're willing to follow him together. And so we say, I don't need you when we resist committing to a local church. Last way we do this is when we don't ask for help. When we don't ask for help. When I come in and my week has just been trash and, and my, my life is just a mess, maybe my marriage is really struggling or, or I'm just really having a hard time with my kids or like work has just been beating me up. And so what happens is as soon as we walk through the threshold of those back doors, put a smile on, say, God is good, life is good. And as soon as you walk back into your car, you're just a wreck. You see, what happens is we come in and we say, I need, I'm afraid to be vulnerable. And so I need to look a certain kind of way. I need to appear a certain kind of way. But we actually prevent the gifts of caring and encouragement and prayer and exhortation, we prevent those gifts from being used when I say I don't need help. And so it is always okay to say you need help. It is always okay to say that you're not okay because God has equipped our church with caring people who can care for you. So don't say I don't need you by saying I don't need help. You see, the beautiful thing about this is that when we get this, when we get this, where is God at work in our church? Where is he moving in our church? Is he only moving when the first beat drops on the first song and when we send you out to be the church in your neighborhood? No, he's moving in every part of our life, every part of our community. I was thinking just this past week, I was paying attention to this as I was, as I was knowing I was going to preach this sermon. And we've, had, we've had people who, who are caring for people going through really hard marriage stuff. We've had people who have helped people out with, uh, with financial resources. We've had people who have helped people out with their, with their house issues. We have people who, who text encouraging words and follow up with prayer and prayer requests afterwards. We have people who bring food. We have people who come early to help set up. Right now in our kids' classes, God is moving. 
because he's there and he's gifted people in a particular kind of way. And so when we get this, right, God is always on the move in our community. It's just a matter of whether we have eyes to see it, ears to hear it, hearts to receive it. God's always moving, not just when someone is speaking. And the end goal of all this, the end of all of this is love. Right, like This is why Paul in, in chapter 13, if you just turn over whatever one page you have, chapter 13. Uh, don't worry, I'm not going to preach the whole of chapter 13 because I don't need to. Because 13 speaks for itself. In essence, Paul has been leading everything else in this letter up to chapter 13. And we tend to hear 13 only at a wedding. And we tend to think, okay, this is like two star-crossed lovers committing themselves to life. No, this is what should define the life of the church. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong. If I have prophetic powers, I have nothing. If I have not love, if I give away everything that I have, I gain nothing. He's saying, of all the things that we could do as a church, of all the things that we could do as a community, we could have the best services. We could have the best block parties. We could have the best worship, the best teaching, the best prayer life, the best coffee. We could have all these things. But if we are not loving people, we are wasting our time. And on the outside, it would look so good. It would look so good. But if love is not at the center of it, he says God's not in it. He's not a part of that. And so that he, he defines that then in verses 4 through 7. He says, what does that mean? It means you're patient and kind to one another. You're not envious or boastful of one another. You're not arrogant or rude. You're not insisting on your own way. You're not grumpy. It's not rejoicing when wrongdoing happens, but it corrects people with the truth and love. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Is that what was going on inside of you the last time you were sitting in community and it was getting a little uncomfortable? The last time you were around someone who's different than you in church, and you're like, I wish I could have it my way. No, Paul's saying this should define our life together. That if we're not loving people, then we're missing the point. And not just people like as an idea. It's really easy to love people as an idea. I love people. But no, it's like loving him, loving her, loving them in the mess that they're in right now. That's what is the most important. So Paul says this, of everything that we can do, it will end, except for how we love people. One day this church will close, long in the future. Every church does. One day programs will end, service is going to end in like half an hour. Things end, but love is the only thing that lasts. Loving particular people in this community that you're called to follow Jesus in. So he says, don't waste your time on things that don't involve loving people. He calls us in verse 11 to maturity. Chapter 13, verse 11. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. He's saying that's mature Christian spirituality, where you're growing in your understanding of who Jesus is, is about other people. Children, they, they want what they want, and they demand it. But being a mature follower of Jesus is saying, I'm here to love people. I'm here to give. I'm here to contribute. So he says, take that step. Grow up into mature Christian spirituality. So what does that look like for us? I just have two things. Two things for us this morning. How do we grow up into community? Uh, the first is this, growing up into Christ. Growing up into Christ, all this begins by saying yes to Jesus, saying yes to his pursuit of you. Until you have embraced Jesus as king, you are not alive spiritually. 
And so the first step of Christian maturity is saying yes to Jesus, saying, Jesus, you're king. I believe that you died for me. I believe that you rose again for me so that I could follow you. And so growing up is to take that step of commitment. Say, yeah, I'm, Jesus, I'm all in. But the second is to then take that step into community. And community, not just for the sake of me, like, does this fit me? Does this feel, appeal to me? Does this do what I want? No, community for the sake of others. Which means it's not always going to be comfortable. It's not always going to be easy. It's not always going to be everything that you want. But stepping into that community, because that's what Christ has called us to. And to be willing to be used and to use your gift for other people. Because that is what love is all about. So now faith, hope, and love abide. But the greatest of these is love. Let me pray for us. Christ, you loved us to the point of giving your life. Spirit, you empower us with gifts that are not about us, they're about other people. And so this morning, God, as we've just kind of talked through like how we think about ourselves, how we think about other people, God, would you give us this deep understanding that everything we have is a gift. And so we're then invited to share that gift with the people around us. God, I know this morning there's, there's probably people who are afraid to ask for help. Would you give them the courage to say, hey, I need help? It's people who are afraid to step into community. Would you give them the courage to take that step? And God, at the end of the day, 50, 60, 80, 100 years from now, will we be known as a church defined by loving real people and the reality of their lives? Because this is what you did for us. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.